is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Chris Edens. And today for Charles Feldman, a great credit score. Turns out it could cost you if you're looking to buy a home. We'll explain on In Depth. Pedestrian deaths have been on the rise in the past decade. We'll explain why and maybe how we can stop it. Also, doctors have figured out how to make you taller. Hmm. Now we start, though, with uh, the new mortgage surcharge. Jeff Lazarson, president of Mortgage Greater in Laguna Nagal, he writes about the surcharge in a column today in the OC Register. Uh, Jeff, thank you for taking some time for us today on In-Depth. First of all, if you could explain to us this surcharge, because it, if you work hard to keep your credit score a good one, it really seems unfair. It, so, Chris, it, it, it's it's a subsidy, and it's... I hate to say it, but it's kind of like socialism. They're what they're doing is rewarding people with low down payments and lower credit scores against people that have good credit scores. And it, it's just it's so silly, and that's why the whole uproar is going on is because it, this is like upside down. People should be rewarded for paying their bills on time with better pricing, but they're being punished right now. So the idea, as I understand it, is, you know, attempting to help people uh, become homeowners who might uh, otherwise be priced out or or blocked out of the market for whatever reason. But the the other danger in this might seem to be an issue that we've seen before in this country. Uh, Too many people able to get into homes when they can't really afford it and they can't really afford the payments. And then we wind up having another housing market crash. Is that a danger here with this? That's 100% a danger of, of this. That's, that's actually the biggest fear because if you are going to give somebody a, a cheaper price, make it easier for them to get in, but they don't have the financial discipline to pay their bills on time, what makes anybody think that that's going to change when they're a homeowner? And then with home ownership, there's a lot more stuff you got to deal with, not just the house payment. Something breaks, you got to take care of it. It's not like a, a landlord situation where they're going to take care of it for you. So it's it's inviting another crash uh, for you know for certain borrowers. And and I would just say that if you are thinking about this, and if you have icky credit and you want to get in on this after May 1st, I would have a backup plan. I would have somebody in your life, uh, you know, mom, dad, sister, brother, sibling, I don't know, but somebody to be your backstop in case you get into trouble. And if you don't have that and you're worried about making your monthly payment on time, just don't do it because there's, there's no point if, if you get a foreclosure, it's going to hurt your credit. You're going to lose your down payment. It will never be good. Jeff, do you see this dissuading people with higher credit scores from getting into the market and, and buying a home? No, no, I don't. They, no, not at all. They, everybody wants to get in, and and I would tell anybody right now that has a higher credit score with the with that say under twenty percent down payment, what you should do. In fact, what everybody should do is is get your rate jacked up. So it's it's like you take a high rate with no points higher rate with without points because rates are going to come crashing down the fourth quarter. So it's not dissuading others from from doing this, but just keep in mind recession's coming, rates are going to drop, you're going to refinance anyway. Do not invest money in buying the rate down with points. 
All right, I'm not a financial expert, but it seems to me if the problem is that uh, too many people are getting priced out of uh, being able to afford a home, that the problem is not in letting them uh, get uh, these these high loans that they may not be able to afford. The problem seems to be you got to make homes more affordable. How can we do that? Well, one thing that that I see happening, and and I think it's a great idea, is they're they're making legislative changes in Sacramento to convert commercial properties to residential properties. I I think that is a fantastic idea if that goes through and it's going to help a lot. There's there's just all kinds of problems in the in the commercial market right now whether it's malls or or office buildings. And so that would be a great start to to be able to make things more affordable. We just the as far as building new stuff, it can't happen fast enough, but if you convert buildings that would be a super great move. All right, Jeff Lazerson, thank you so much for joining us, President of Mortgage Greater in Laguna de Gal. Right now, though, the Federal Reserve are releasing a report on what led to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. It blames itself in part. Alexander Tomich is an associate dean and economist at Boston College. Uh, Alexander, thanks for taking some time for us today. The, the Fed basically saying it didn't do enough to stop the bank's problems. How worrisome is it to hear that news? So thank you for having me. You know, I don't think it's that worrisome. I mean, it is uh, an admission of um, of a lapse, if you will. But what is really interesting is if you look at the first page of that report, you look at the point number four, and they say, look, we were tailoring our regulatory approach to comply with the Economic Growth Regulatory Re- Relief and Consumer Protection Act. So basically, they were not as hard as they could have been on the Silicon Valley Bank. It probably, and this is not just them, it's probably most of the smaller banks in order to not impede their growth. So hopefully this is one of those situations where, you know, they learn the lesson and they will not have it happen again. Uh, What is the Fed doing to kind of correct this so this doesn't happen again? So Fed, I mean, uh, I what Fed is probably right now doing is they are going over the numbers again and become more assertive. Because one of the things with the Silicon Valley Bank, what was interesting, is they actually had something like 33 notices of insufficiencies, which was about three times as much as most other banks. So my guess is that the Fed is now taking a harder stance and basically not letting them slide as much as they have in the past. More interesting will be if Congress comes back and reintroduces some of the regulations like the stability tests for banks with less than uh, you know, $250 billion in, uh, in capitalization. Because it used to be everybody that had $50 billion or more was subject to Dodd-Frank stability testing, and then that was increased to 250 and Silicon Valley Bank was at $211 billion. So they were right under uh, that uh, limit that would have, you know, that, that would have resulted in a much more stringent uh, uh, regulatory oversight. So I think the bigger, bigger question here is whether we will see the regulation go back to reducing the capital requirement that will trigger more stringent uh, stringent uh, stress testing and, and regulatory oversight. Alexander, unlike in a country like Canada, which I know has just a handful of banks, but they're all rock solid here, we've got a different bank on every street corner. Um, so many regional banks. I think many people wonder just how safe are these regional banks? So that's a that that's a great question, uh, you know, and the, and you're absolutely correct. That's not just Canada. I mean, most of the rest of the world doesn't really have, especially not 
developed nations. Uh, they do not necessarily have these huge banks. And some of that goes back to Great Depression, which was basically when U.S. banks simply couldn't get big until early 90s, right? You could not operate across the state lines and sometimes even across county lines. So I think some of that is the remnant of that culture where basically said, sure, they are not as safe, but if they fail, then we don't have as big of a problem. Right. So the small regional bank is obviously more exposed. And that's one of the reasons Silicon Valley failed, because they were very, very concentrated in the tech sector. And then when the tech sector hit the bump, they were doomed. So this is the same story. If you have, you know, you have a bank in Florida heavily invested in real estate in Florida, you know, Florida real estate uh, goes south, you know, pardon the pun. And, you know, they are. out. But it's a small bank. You know, yes, sucks for people in Florida, but we don't have a systemic problem. Whereas you have Bank of America, and if they had bad risk management or something like what we saw in 2008, and they start failing, then we have a systemic problem, right? So it's it's a give and take, and the United States is known for this. And, and one of the reasons that, that we saw this lax uh, approach to regulation is because extra regulation, make no mistake, benefits big banks. They can invest in people, they can invest in processes, they can invest in technology in the ways that small banks can't. Uh, and then if you impose a lot of regulations, you start killing off community banks and start building these behemoths who are then too big to fail, which brings a set of risks on, on its own. All right. Thank you so much, Alexander uh, Tillmich, an associate dean and economist the Boston College. Coming up, how would you like to be a little taller? You can, and you don't need special shoes. Mm -hmm. We'll tell you how. Uh, Right now, though, Russia has fired more than 20 cruise missiles and two drones during attacks in Ukraine. About two dozen people were killed. War correspondent Phil Edner is back with us on the line from Kiev. Phil, uh, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, good to be here. And uh, so the situation, these uh, new attacks uh, from Russia, is this a signal of uh, of more aggression or, or or is this just more of the same? It seems like from Russia, they they ramp up attacks and they kind of pull back then they ramp up attacks again, but they're not really getting anywhere. Well, we haven't had a, a serious attack in quite some time. So this was a bit of a shock to the system, but you know, everybody kind of expressed expects that it's always on uh, the horizon. So uh, this was an attack uh, overnight last night, our time, uh, which kind of slammed into an apartment building and killed, um, you know, right now, uh, 23 civilians and four of them children in a a town called Uman. And... um, it is. It's kind of in this period where we're anticipating a uh, a Ukrainian counteroffensive, as the weather changes and all the um, the Western military uh, equipment has arrived on the ground here. Uh, it, there's kind of a this tension between the Russians and the Ukrainians. I think, um, you know, until the, the Ukrainians actually launched this vaunted counteroffensive, there's a lot of concern on the on the Russian side, and they're kind of trying to stabilize their position, maybe perhaps, uh, you know, uh, show that they can still have offensive capabilities. Uh, even though this is not a military objective, it is still what the Russians continually do, which is they use their military to sow terror, which is 
why a lot of people say that Russia is kind of a, a supporter of state terrorism in Ukraine because they do things like this and they just strike out yeah. at uh, at civilian Phil, uh, um, locations. I want to push a little deeper on the, the counteroffensive that we're hearing that Ukraine is, is set to uh, put in place. Any word from your post in Kiev, uh, any word on how how it might, uh, or rather what it might look like and when it might start? Well, uh, weather uh, is going to play a big part of that, uh, but uh, no, <laughs> um, in a very ambiguous and shady, kind of shadowy, shadowy response to that, it, 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 no, nobody does know when that is going to happen. And it is not something that people pursue because they do actually know that uh, operational security is really important. So we we can kind of guess at it, but we don't know because it's locked tight uh, here within the Ukrainian military military and and Ukrainian civil society. Uh, Nobody really wants to know because they're hoping that that's that's something that, you know, that will be a surprise to the enemy. What we can we can kind of take a couple of clues from is the weather. Uh, the weather is changing to uh, a proper summer, and and hopefully the the ground will be dry enough for armored vehicles to maneuver. Um, but there's also um, kind of uh, questions about uh, supply chains and all the rest of it. Uh, the NATO on the NATO side of things, uh, uh, Jen Sultenberg, who's the Head of NATO has said all of the Western equipment that we intended to send, we have sent. Um, but we'll have to see how the Ukrainians uh, utilize them. And it will depend on weather. And it will also depend on positioning and kind of how to um, conduct an offensive operation, which is um, something the Ukrainians have have had successes in the past. But um, is still, you know, something kind of new to them because this has been uh, a war primarily propagated by the Russians. Phil, very quickly, uh, before we run out of time, this uh, counteroffensive from Ukraine, whenever it comes, is it going to have an advantage of attrition in that uh, Russia has thrown so many uh, men and equipment at the situation there in Ukraine and have really, uh, in some cases, bitten off more than they can chew? Well, they they seem to have done something really odd for for a military to do, and they pinned themselves down in locations and and allowed themselves whether it was uh, Mariupol uh, or whether it was uh, uh, the battle they're conducting right now in Bakhmut, and they they concentrate their forces there, and that allows um, Ukrainian forces to everywhere else build up their defenses and and prep or uh, a, a strike somewhere in depth because they have a good defensive line, they can, they can then concentrate their offensive line into, into an attack. And what we, and look, we're just going to have to see. They have some very good um, military experts in Ukraine. Uh, everybody talks about the, um, the outstanding performance on the diplomatic uh, front by uh, President Volodymyr, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, there's a lot of guys here who are very good with military expertise, uh, whether it's Luz, uh, the head of, of, of the Ministry of Defense, uh, uh, General Zaluzny, 
or some of the other, you know, yeah. subordinate generals. They're really good at this. And when this counteroffensive strikes out, and it probably will be within the next six weeks, um, there's every chance it's going to be um, a, a real decisive moment in the war. All right. War correspondent Phil Edner uh, on the line with us from Kiev in Ukraine. You're listening to KNX in Depth along with Rob Archer. I'm Chris Seedens. The Hill crunched some federal numbers. They found that pedestrian deaths across the country have jumped more than 70 percent since 2010. Yeah, some safety advocates say it's because of the rise in the number of pickup trucks and SUVs on our roadways. Uh, we're joined by a couple of guests on In-Depth. Michael Schneider is chief executive of the L.A. advocacy group Streets for All. Also with us is Nick Ferencik. He's director of the Center for Pedestrian and Bicyclist Safety at the University of New Mexico. Gentlemen, thank you. First of all, Nick, I'll turn to you. Uh, is there more uh, to the rise in pedestrian deaths than large SUVs and pickup trucks hitting people and causing so much damage? I think there is. I, I think some of this recent reporting has been a little one-sided for a, what is a pretty complex problem. Uh, for instance, most of the SUVs that were kind of the, the strongest growth in SUVs really happened over the 90s and early 2000s. And what was happening with pedestrian fatalities during that time is pedestrian fatalities were actually pretty consistently going down. Uh, and, and we saw this huge increase starting in 2010, where we've almost doubled the number of pedestrians killed on our streets over the last about 12, 13 years. Um, so I'm not here to defend SUVs or pickup trucks. That's, I think, part of the problem. But really, to me, coming from a civil engineering perspective, what it comes down to is if, if you want safe streets, you really need to think about how we're designing our streets themselves. All right, uh, Michael. Uh... Uh, in your view, uh, trucks, apparently, according to these numbers, uh, depending on how you weigh these numbers, uh, might be more of a problem. Is that because in the situation of a truck or an SUV, uh, you've kind of got the physics of that, right? Uh, hitting a pedestrian or especially a person on a bicycle with a kind of a lower car, uh, the bicyclist might wind up on, on the hood of the car. Now, yeah, there's going to be some injuries there. You still don't want to do it. But uh, you got nowhere to go if you're hit by a truck or an SUV. You, you take the full force of the impact, don't you? Yeah, that's right. Um, people that used to maybe be pulled under the car, which is certainly not a good place to be. I'm sorry, people that used to go onto the hood, which is not a good place to be, are now being pulled under the car, which is a worse place to be. Um, also, due to the height of the vehicles, you're hitting vital organs versus breaking legs and knees and stuff like that. Um, but the blind spots are huge. Uh, the, a common SUV today or a pickup truck has a 10-foot blind spot. Uh, they, it was an experiment where they had 13 children seated in a line in front of a modern Escalade, and the driver could not see the top of a kid's head until kid 13. So we're just creating these huge trucks and packing them with technology, saying the video cameras will substitute the fact that the drivers can't see well, and it's just all wrong. And, and Michael, my producer just came in my ear and said that you, you've got some form of a solution that you think would work in a situation like this. What would that be? Uh, well, with respect to your producer, I think I'm not sure what single solution there is, um, but I agree with Nick. I think we need to redesign streets in Los Angeles to, regardless of the vehicle you're driving, to reduce harm when things go wrong. In cities that have eliminated pedestrian deaths, it's called Vision Zero throughout the world. They've done so by redesigning their streets, uh, not by regulating cars. Oh, I remember what your producer may be talking yeah, about. Yeah, a warning, apparently a warning yeah. of some kind. My apologies. So, yeah, uh, we used to do this on cigarette uh, packages, especially in other countries like in Mexico. If you buy a pack of cigarettes, there's a picture of a 
cancer in your esophagus or cancer in your lung. It's, it's a very graphic picture and some people still buy the cigarettes, but it warns you. There's nothing like that for cars today. Today, for cars, they're getting safer for those inside the car to the detriment of everyone outside the car. And I think consumers might change their behavior if we had warning labels on cars saying, hey, this car is so big that if you hit somebody, they're 20% more likely to die or a kid is 30% more likely to get seriously mm, injured. Yeah. I think that can make a difference. All right, uh, Nick, uh, uh, talking about redesigning streets uh, for pedestrians and people on bicycles, uh, could part of the solution be building more of these uh, pedestrian overpasses over these uh, larger streets that have more lanes that you have to get through? Or is that just not a feasible uh, thing to do, given the money and the, 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 the spending that would have to take place for that? We always lean against that, um, especially in an urban environment. I mean, if you're thinking about like a rural environment where you have an interstate highway, yeah, that might be the only option to get pedestrians or bicyclists across that roadway. But especially in an urban environment, we really want to rethink uh, the design of the streets uh, in a more fundamental way. To us, just putting uh, an overpass or, you know, one uh, painting a crosswalk on an unsafe road. It's kind of just putting a Band-Aid on something that's really got more fundamental issues. Uh, for instance, we know that 75% of pedestrians that are killed are killed on what we call arterial or, or larger roadways, five-lane roads, seven-lane roads. Uh, so we would recommend rethinking these types of roadways. How do we slow traffic down the difference between driving 45 miles an hour and 35 miles an hour, you know, could could save dozens of lives a year, things like that. So, yeah, instead of putting Band-Aids on an unsafe mm-hmm. road, we want to fundamentally rethink that road in the first uh, in the first place. All right. We want to thank our guests on this segment, uh, Michael Schneider with the L.A. Advocacy Group Streets for All. Also, Nick Frenchick with the Center for Pedestrian and Bicyclist Safety. Have you thought about what life would be like? If you were just a little bit taller. Well, if you have the money, you can find out through a surgery <laughs> to make your legs longer. longer. Dr. Uh, Shabab well. Maboubian is a surgeon at the Height Lengthening Institute in Burbank. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, guys. It's uh, Dr. Maboubian. Pleasure to be here with you guys. Mm. All right. Me. So, uh, sir, we're talking surgery here. Uh, that sounds painful. What kind of surgery makes you taller well this is a uh, surgery it's called the height lengthening surgery um basically what it is is that i make a surgical cut in the bone so we're actually breaking the bone uh then we put in a special rod it's a lengthening rod that goes inside the bone itself uh and over time using a magnetic device um the, the nail lengthens and pulls the bone apart, the cut bone, it pulls it apart. And because we do it slowly over time, new bone forms, and that becomes part of your permanent bone, making you permanent, permanently taller. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, I, I know I'm a little bit taller than Charles Feldman, but I'm a little bit shorter than Rob Archer. Now, say I want to get to Rob's height. How much taller can you make me? Well, I could make you potentially up to six inches taller. Six uh, inches? Six inches. But that's with two separate surgeries. Most of my patients, uh, they undergo one surgery, which gets uh, a maximum of eight centimeters uh, from their height, which is just over three inches. That's a fair amount. 
And uh, how how long does it take and how painful is it? Is, yeah. is there a lot of pain involved with this? Well, if you break your bone, you're going to be in pain. But the good news is that that pain doesn't last very long. Uh, it's only painful the first, like, three, four days after their surgery. Um, and once their swelling kind of calms down, uh, their pain tends to go away. Uh, then you have the stretching type of pain from the lengthening procedure. So, you know, they do have some pain, but it's very bearable. Uh, you know, the, the part that hurts the most is if you were to walk around with a broken leg. But because we're fixing the bone, it's not that bad. And it's pretty tolerable. Uh, the recovery from this surgery can take about six months before you're walking without the need for any assistive devices. But I have my patients get up and walk the same day as surgery. Now, of course, they're using a walker and wheelchair for long distances, but they're definitely not bedridden. They're definitely moving. What, what kind of side effects might there be from surgery like this? Side effects can include, yeah. so you mean like complications, right? Yeah, complications or just things you, you might, you know, with anything you have done, uh, w- whether it's this or having, uh, what, uh, we run those ads for, for uh, hair growth, things like that. There can be, there can be side effects. Um, sure. Yeah, so, you know, just like with any surgeries, there is a risk of complications such as infection, but we give antibiotics for that. There's a risk of developing blood clots. So I put okay. my patients on blood thinners while they're lengthening. Um, they can get kind of stiff because, you know, as we're stretching out the bone, you're also stretching out all the muscles and ligaments and tendons. So they can get kind of stiff. But with the proper physical therapy, all of my patients have been able to get back to their pre-surgery status. Uh, and they've been able to get back to sports and playing soccer or basketball or whatever it's been. All right. Sounds like a lot to go through to get taller. How many uh, how much interest are you getting in this? How many patients are you seeing? Are you, are you seeing a lot more interest in this? You know, the interest on this has been growing every year. Uh, We've been doing a lot of different types of um, advertisements on TikTok and, you know, marketing about this procedure. You know, a lot of people don't know that this procedure exists. So when they hear about it, they're like, hey, I want to be taller, right? Everybody everybody (laughs) wants to. So, yeah, it's definitely growing in in, uh, popularity. And, yeah, right now I'm probably doing 30 to 40 of these a year. Um, but it is definitely increasing in popularity. Are we talking mostly men here or what about women? Uh, you know, height is a lot more important to men than it is to women. Uh, first of all, men tend to be taller than women. But at the same time, women have the uh, opportunities to wear high heels. Men, not so much. So, yes, most of my patients are men, but I've had a fair number of women that have, under, uh, that have also undergone the procedure. Okay, and, and so and do you, I guess oh, here's the big question, cost. If I want maybe, a, maybe an inch and a half to be as tall as uh, Rob, or maybe I want six <laughs> inches to, to uh, get closer to an NBA career, uh, how do you charge for this? Is it by the inch? <laughs> no. <it's, laughs> okay. Not by the inch, but by the surgery. Um, what's the average cost then for something like this? So that, so the average cost is any, and it is pretty expensive, uh, but it could cost anywhere from 70 to a hundred thousand dollars. Uh, but that's including, you know, the implant, which is the majority of the cost, but also includes surgeons fees, facility fees, uh, and also all the, uh, x-rays and follow-ups with Mm. me. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, how to get taller. 
from wow. surgery. Dr. Wow. Uh, Shabab Mububi in there. Of course, uh, neither of us is tall. It's our uh, KNX colleague, uh, Karen Adams, over here, oh. who who towers over all of us. Yes, it's just, she does. It's frightening. Uh, but that's going to do it times. for KNX In-Depth today. <laughs> uh, we'll be back to uh, make that Monday.